0: Welcome to Harvard Business Review for May 2014. In this issue, you'll learn how to figure out if a new management idea is right for you before you adopt it. You'll hear what to do before a hedge fund buys into your company and demands changes. And you'll learn why it's important to reward the best people in an organization who don't necessarily seek the spotlight. We begin, though, with a piece from the Idea Watch. In making freemium work, Vineet Kumar, an assistant professor of marketing at Harvard Business School, writes about how many startups have failed to recognize the challenges of this popular business model. Over the past decade, freemium, a combination of free and premium, has become the dominant business model among Internet startups and smartphone app developers. Users get basic features at no cost and can access richer functionality for a subscription fee. If you've networked on LinkedIn, shared files through Dropbox, watched TV shows through Hulu, or searched for a made-on match, you've experienced the model firsthand. It works for B2B companies as well. Examples include Box, Splunk, and Yammer. Several factors contribute to the appeal of a freemium strategy. Because free features are a potent marketing tool, the model allows a new venture to scale up and attract a user base without expending resources on costly ad campaigns or a traditional sales force. The monthly subscription fees typically charged are proving to be a more sustainable source of revenue than the advertising model prevalent among online firms in the early 2000s. Social networks are powerful drivers. Many services offer incentives for referring friends, which is more appealing when the product is free. And freemium is more successful than 30-day free trials or other limited-term offers because customers have become wary of cumbersome cancellation processes and find indefinite free access more compelling. But despite its popularity and clear benefits, freemium is still poorly understood. It has inherent challenges, as demonstrated by the many startups that have tried but failed to make it work. For several years, I have studied freemium models in depth by co-authoring with my HBS colleagues Barad Anand, Sunil Gupta, and Felix Oberholzer-G, a case on the New York Times' paywall strategy, a variation of the freemium model, conducting a deep dive into the user data of a storage and synchronization company, and co-authoring with my HBS colleagues Clarence Lee and Sunil Gupta a working paper on how freemium companies can use referrals to spur usage and upgrades. Through this work, I've come up with six questions that startups considering a freemium model should ask. What should be free? Let's say you've created a digital product that has 20 features and you've chosen five that will be free to anyone who registers on your site. Users who want the other 15 will have to pay. How do you know whether you've made the right choices? And if you suspect that you haven't, what should you do? Recall that one of the chief purposes of freemium is to attract new users. If you're not succeeding with that goal, it probably means that your free offerings are not compelling enough and you need to provide more or better features free. If you're generating lots of traffic but few people are paying to upgrade, you may have the opposite problem. Your free offerings are too rich and it's time to cut back. This kind of tuning was evident at the New York Times website. After years of unrestricted access, in 2011 the paper began limiting users to 20 free articles a month. People had to subscribe if they wanted to read more. Over subsequent months, the company realized it was still giving away too much and was getting too few subscribers as a result. So in 2012, it cut the number of free monthly articles to 10. Startups should expect to do similar tweaking to find the optimal balance between traffic and paying customers. The balancing act can be tricky. Users may revolt when asked to pay for things they are accustomed to getting free. Do customers fully understand the premium offer? Communicating two sets of benefits complicates your marketing efforts. If customers don't clearly grasp what they would gain by upgrading, you will monetize fewer of them than you otherwise might. Dropbox and LinkedIn are a study in contrasts. The former has attracted 200 million users with a simple proposition. Everyone who enters a username and a password gets two gigabytes of cloud-based storage free. If people run out of space, they can pay $9.99 a month, or alternately $99 a year, for 100 gigabytes of storage. The free version is adequate for basic documents, but anyone who wants to back up photos or other media quickly hits the limit, and the reasons to upgrade are obvious. For many LinkedIn users, the advantages of upgrading are murkier. I've used LinkedIn for several years to keep in touch with colleagues, and I routinely receive emails urging me to upgrade— but the ongoing value of doing so is not apparent. The company offers four premium subscriptions, some aimed at specific customer segments, such as recruiters or salespeople, and most featuring deeper search functionality, better email capability, and more visibility into who has viewed your profile. Although LinkedIn is successful, it was one of the first freemium companies to go public, it could probably monetize more users if the distinctions between its free and paid offerings were clearer. What is your target conversion rate? Imagine that you're the CEO of a freemium startup, and you're handed a report showing your conversion rate, the percentage of free users who have upgraded to a premium plan, for the most recent quarter. What figure do you hope to see? A rate of 1% is probably too low, especially if you rely on subscription revenue alone. Some players, including the New York Times and LinkedIn, also collect online ad revenue. It signals either that too much of what you're providing is free, giving users little reason to upgrade.